This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello, I'm David Best. And I'm Hannah Levitt. Welcome to Triple Vision. Today is our second episode on the theme of advocacy. And with us today, we have John Ray. A lot of you are probably familiar with that name. And just so you know, we recorded this conversation with John about a week before he passed away. So we just want to acknowledge that uh, that he has passed away and this was pre-recorded. So John, can you give us a 30-second elevator pitch as to who you are and what your expertise is? I'm a totally blind senior who worked for the Ontario government for 24 and a half years before taking early retirement. I spent a fair bit of time in the labor movement, held elective positions with my own local and participated in committees at the local, provincial, and national levels. And have been involved in many, many disability rights and broader human rights organizations across Canada uh, for almost 50 years now. I've chaired three of them, two at the national level. And even nowadays at my age, activism and advocacy and bringing about social change remains firmly embedded in my blood. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the cultural context at the time? I think that's an important place to begin because the 60s and 70s were quite different from today, I think. They were times of community activism, groups coming together. I refer particularly to the women's movement across this continent, the civil rights movement in the United States. And in the U.S., the Vietnam War was winding down, and many individuals who went to Vietnam allegedly to fight for their country, came home, many with disabilities, and found their communities not terribly accessible or accepting of their changed state. And some of them came together to use some of the skills they had developed in the military to to fight for change in the U.S. Well, when we think about Canada, there some of us looked at what was happening in the U.S. and basically thought to ourselves, if if self-advocating and self-organization is bringing about positive changes down there, why can't that happen here in Canada? And a number of groups formed in the 1970s. The Blind Rights Action Movement in Nova Scotia, formed by a group of former students of the Halifax School for the Blind, the uh, Association of Concerned Handicapped in BC, later on a a group in Manitoba, and in Ontario there was BOOST, the Blind Organization of Ontario with Self-Help Tactics. In 
74, I believe it was, began the Unmet Needs of Blind Canadians study, a national study co-founded, co-funded rather by CNIB and Health and Welfare Canada. And what that study did, as its name implied, it got everybody thinking and talking about what were the unmet needs of blind Canadians, whether it be service providers, even some decision makers, and of course, the blind community itself. In our view, we thought being headquartered in Toronto, as Boost was, we were well-situated. After all, that was where the largest concentration of blind people lived. We were close to the seat of Ontario's government, the Ontario legislature, and not terribly far from Canada's national capital in Ottawa. And, of course, close to the headquarters of the CNIB. We were an organization of blind people who came together to speak for ourselves. And the important part about that is that we employed what is called a mass-based approach. We, we didn't just have the chair going out doing all the speaking. We tried to involve everybody in developing policies and our initiatives. And for many of us, being involved gave us a chance to learn skills, skills of organizing, skills of writing, skills of public speaking, we learned by doing. And for many of us, hey, that was the first opportunity we'd ever had in our lives to participate in a meaningful way in decisions that affected us. And that was exciting. So the early days of Boost, we focused on three primary areas. One was the lack of legislation. In 1975, there was a Human Rights Commission in Ontario, but persons with disabilities weren't then covered, nor were we covered in any other uh, human rights code across the country. There was no protective legislation for guide dog users. It was easy for a person traveling with a dog to be refused entry into public places. Blind, blind people were expressly prohibited from serving on juries. The second thing was the need to promote a broader opportunities in the field of employment. Yeah, there were some stereotype jobs, but our employment opportunities were limited. And sad to say, they still are. And the third area was public and self-education. Yes, we wanted to educate the public to try and reduce the stigma about blindness. You know, even today, for some strange reason, at least I think it's a strange reason, blindness is still considered by far the most feared of all disabilities. Yes, the most feared, even more so than cancer or anything else, the most feared. But self-education was also important. We needed to learn how to advocate for ourselves and to work together and, and to develop policies and programs. So it was both public and self-education. As time went on, of course, we came up against the omnipresence of the CNIV, and that was a problem. For example, when Boost sought incorporation for the first time, we were denied. 
the government basically said, why do you need another organization when, when CNIB is there? Well, of course, we argued against that notion and said we're different. We were different. You know, we were a consumer group speaking for ourselves, and ultimately Boost did get uh, incorporated, did get a charitable number, and, and carried on. The, the late Mike Yale traveled to Windsor, Ontario to meet the late Jerry Gohan, who was then a professor at St. Clair Community College in Windsor. And in Jerry's living room, one fine afternoon, the two of them decided right then and there to found Boost. And he did. They said Boost existed and invited people to come and join it. That's an unusual approach. That was timely because four days later, on March 4th, there was a large public meeting in Toronto at the St. Lawrence Center as part of the Unmet Needs Study. Mike was one of four panelists that night. He announced the existence of Boost, invited folks to come and join it. Tonight I met Mike and jumped feet first into advocacy that night. At the same time, there was a group organizing what came to be called the Conference of Blind Youth, which happened in May. It tended to be the same group of people who organized Boost. So when we were talking about Boost, Mike chaired the meetings. When we were talking about the conference, Joanne Balsam, later Joanne Yale, chaired those meetings. But it's primarily the same group. The conference did happen in May, and by the latter part of May, Boost had about 100 members because although the conference was scheduled and, in fact, was held as an element in the Unmet Needs study, and a report from that conference did go to the study and was incorporated into it, in reality, by the time the conference happened, it was basically a boost organizing event. And 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 the final thing that was really important in the early days back then, the federal department of secretary of state had a program called the Company of Young Canadians. It was designed to to en enable new groups who needed community organizers to hire staff. And by the middle of June, Boost got two organizers through the CYC, and Joanne and I were hired to be those two organizers. So then we, of course, believe that it's, it's useful to have some short-term victories. And uh, we were operating out of the Donvale Community Center in central Toronto, and the head of the Toronto School Board happened to be a friend of Mike's. He represented that ward of the school board. And so we went to Mr. Cressy one day and suggested that the Toronto School Board should adopt a non-discriminatory policy for the hiring of disabled and blind teachers. And uh, he liked the idea. We expected that uh, he would go away and think about it and maybe down the road something would happen. That's not what happened. <laughs> he immediately scheduled us for the next meeting of the appropriate committee. We went to it. And very quickly, the Toronto School Board adopted this kind of policy. We then took that policy and sent it to all other 100-plus school boards across Ontario, and several others adopted a similar policy. Because what we knew at the time 
and I and sadly, I think it's still the case that there were many more blind people teaching in the regular school system in the U.S. than was or is the case up here in Canada. We hoped that uh, this policy would make a difference. I'm not sure how much difference it has made, but it was it was an early an early victory. Another early victory was getting the prohibit the prohibition against blind people serving on juries removed. The Ontario government removed that. So those were a couple of of important early issues that uh, Boos took on, and where we had some short term and early successes. Didn't you also play a part in blind people having access to their CNIB records? That was an important issue. Uh, CNIB had, I guess still does, has a file on each person who's registered. At the time, we couldn't see what those files contained. Some people believed they contained a, a lot of negative thoughts or negative information about us, but we didn't know. So we wanted the right, and I do mean the right, to have access to our own file and and to see what was in it. That was a bit of a struggle because at the time, the leaders in CNIB were old-time military folks, and and they ran the agency with with an iron fist. The more recalcitrant they became easier it was to pick holes on them. Well, eventually, we did come to an understanding on that, and blind people were able to see their files, uh, and, and that was an important victory as well. So, John, what was the demographic makeup of the membership of Boost, and how effective were, were the members? The membership was a lot younger than what I would say the makeup of the disability rights movement is today. That was partly because of the Conference of Blind Youth and the access to young people that it gave boost. But also, back then, I think our situation in terms of organizing was very, very different than it is today. It's true we didn't have the access to technology that we have today, which many of us use, But back then, many of us went to schools for the blind. Now, we can argue whether that was a good or a bad thing, but from a strictly organizing standpoint, it was helpful because we knew each other. We had networks. Even after we left school, many of us remained friends with at least some of the people that we met at school. Nowadays, the question is, how do we find younger blind people? when More and more young people are attending integrated education. They're a lot harder to find. And nowadays, I believe a lot of younger blind people feel that they can solve their individual issues through technology. To me, it's it's a double-edged sword. It does have its benefits, but I think it also has its drawbacks as well. But it makes organizing groups and developing cohesive collective action much more difficult than it was back then because people are simply harder to find and harder to convince to join. What was the state of human rights at that point? None. (laughs) Simply stated, none. Um, 
there was a human rights commission in Ontario, founded around 1962, I believe it was, that was founded primarily bringing together a number of anti-race statutes. Now, around 1976, I think it was, there was a large wholesale review of the code and the commission. And that exercise produced life together. And as part of Boost's mass-based approach, instead of sending one person to make our presentation at at the public hearing, we sent seven, each of whom made a statement about what, what achieving human rights protection would mean to them. Well, an important report called Life Together was produced, and it recommended many changes to the commission. Strangely, and amazingly enough, over the years, most of the recommendations in that report have actually been implemented. But one of them was to include handicap. And the government of the day, led by the Honorable William Davis, uh, wanted to give disabled people our first human rights protection. But from their perspective, there was a problem. If they moved to attempt to open up the code, to amend the code, they expected the opposition would move an amendment to any such act to include gay rights, which at the time they didn't want. That, of course, uh, did come in some years later. The more the government tried to convince us that their so-called separate but equal bill that would have given disabled people human rights but would not have amended the code, that it was something we, we should accept, the more they tried to convince us, the more and more the community found difficulty with it. And in the end, we had a big meeting, and we took 30 people to the legislature one afternoon to meet Mr. Davis and a couple of his cabinet ministers. We had one demand only that day, just one. One that we figured was simple enough for the press to understand if ever we had to go to the press after the meeting. And it wasn't to introduce all kinds of amendments to the bill that was then before the legislature, but it was to put that bill aside, enter into a negotiating, negotiating process with our coalition, and uh, come up with what we said would be a better bill. And they basically said, well, if we do that, it could be two or three more years before another bill is introduced. And I had to say that afternoon, we've waited this long. If it's going to take another couple of years to do it right, we'll do it that way. And in an hour and a half meeting that ebbed and flowed, uh, we eventually convinced the premier and his colleagues to enter into that uh, process that we proposed. They did. And uh, several months later, both Lee and I had moved on to other things. But uh, our successors finished the job. Handicap was added to the code. Primacy was added to the code. And we also got added into the code what was then the broadest definition of disability in any code in the country. So the uh, approach that we ultimately took ended up 
giving us better results. So I'm glad we took the position we did. But it was difficult because we really did want human rights protection at that point. In 1979, Keith Richards came onto the scene. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that story and maybe what impact it actually had on the community? Oh, horrors. <laughs> Keith Richards. He was uh, busted for possession. And uh, there was a blind woman, Rita, I believe her name was Rita Bedard from Montreal, who apparently knew the judge, Judge Grayburn, who ultimately decided the case. And Keith Richards was found guilty, and he was sentenced. Sentenced to what we considered a most bizarre and inappropriate sentence, that be to perform two benefit concerts for CNIV. Yeah, believe it or not, that's what the sentence was. The rock star walked into court facing the possibility of seven years in prison, the maximum penalty here for possession of heroin. But in the courtroom full of Rolling Stones fans, it quickly became clear that Keith Richards wouldn't be sent to jail. Judge Lloyd Rayburn said heroin addicts should be in prison when they commit crimes to buy drugs or when they make no effort to kick their habit. But Richards was different. He made so much money as a rock star he didn't need to steal, and his effort to remove himself from the drug culture was an example for others. Richards nodded in agreement when the judge said one of the driving forces of his rehabilitation was his desire to create music. So he was put on probation for a year and ordered to continue psychiatric treatment. The judge then told the rock star that as part of his probation, he would have to give a concert here in Toronto for young people at the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Outside the courtroom, Richard's rock fans were absolutely ecstatic. It's like, it's going to help him, he's going to kick his habit, and it's going to help us. <laughs> he's still going to be out there putting out records. <laughs> he's not like every one of us. He's different. <laughs> he's Keith. Richards was then rushed away from the courthouse, and his aides began making plans for his benefit concert for the blind which must be held here within six months. David Bazet, CBC News, Toronto. Uh, the blind community, I think, was quite divided. There were those, and, and this took place in Oshawa, not in Toronto. And free tickets were available to blind people. Well, there were those people in our community who were quite excited about the idea of a free Rolling Stones concert. And there were those of us who soundly criticized the decision of the judge. You know, CNIB had nothing to do with the offense, and we considered it paternalistic and totally inappropriate that uh, the judge sentenced Mr. Richards to perform uh, benefit concerts and benefit of the agency. So, John, there was yet another initiative after Boost, and it was called DASM, and you were a big part of that. was your project, right? Oh, DASM, yes, very very close to my heart, uh, Hannah. It came about from one of those uh, employment creation programs. I applied as an individual through my MP's office and uh, succeeded. Uh, DASM stood for Developing Alternative S Service Models. So we looked at uh, 
some things going on elsewhere and uh, came up with a very large report. Um, I understand you were also involved in in the charter. There is a notion that uh, Canada is a leader in human rights. And there's some truth to that, I guess. In the disability community, we've often had to fight like hell for the protection we now have because, you know, many groups were being included under the charter, but disability was not. And many groups lobbied to have disability included. I think there was a great fear at the time that including disability would result in unbelievable costs to make Canada more accessible than it was, especially at that point. So it came down to the 11th hour. Jean Chrétien rose in the committee and accepted the amendment that included persons with disabilities. And that was at the 11th hour. I think we were the last group that got added. So I understand that Boost does not exist today. So can you tell us when did Boost close the doors and what kind of consumer organizations uh, were stimulated to start up after Boost? Boost did continue, certainly until the early 80s, 83 or 4. It, it sort of declined, partly by internal dissension and uh, lack of resources. This has always been a problem in Canada, the lack of resources for consumer organizations. That is particularly an issue today when we think of the oft-stated clarion call or motto of nothing about us without us. Well, nothing about us without us, to, to my way of thinking, means involvement of us, involvement of disabled people at any table where any new policy program or piece of legislation is being discussed. In order to play that rightful role, and I believe it is our rightful role, because I consider us as rights holders, not just one of the many stakeholder groups that get invited to these exercises. Well, in order to be effective and to play that rightful role, our organizations need to be resourced way better than they ever have been and way better than they are today. What our groups need more than anything else is core funding. And a lot of the funding that is available is project funding. Now, you, you, you can, of course, hire a staff person to conduct the activities of the proposed project. That's true. But uh, the overall running of the organization doesn't usually get covered by those opportunities. So core funding, where you have a staff person who can actually do the work of the organization itself, arrange meetings, put together your annual AGM, keep the organization moving. Core funding is what groups like nowadays the ABC needs, and that's funding that is very hard to obtain. There are a number of groups in Canada who are doing some. The Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, I would probably argue, is doing the largest amount. The CNIB has now taken on advocacy, though I don't think it's its rightful role to be doing so. The Canadian Federation of the Blind is doing advocacy. 
especially in the area of access to reading material and uh, libraries, doing some very strong work. And, and the Canadian Council of the Blind is doing some advocacy as well. We've made progress in some areas, but sad to say, after almost 50 years of advocacy, I'm dealing with some of the same issues that Booth dealt with in 1975. Yeah. That was great, and I personally would like to thank you for all your efforts on my behalf and lots of other blind people's behalves. Well, Hannah, that was really interesting, and I really appreciate that we had the opportunity to record John's story before he passed on. What do you think we've learned from his story? Well, I came to this whole topic of advocacy or the history of advocacy uh, without much information at all. And I just feel so grateful for all the people that had committed so much time out of their busy lives to work on our behalf, on behalf of people with vision loss and for the and the future generations of people with vision loss. So it's um, it's very gratifying to hear all the effort they went through and fascinating that this knowledge isn't part of our everyday knowledge base as people with disabilities. So we hope you join us in two weeks time when we will be presenting episode 16, which is another episode about the later efforts of advocates. And we'll be talking to two really you know, game-changing people in that field. And one of them is David Lepofsky from Ontario, and the other is Yvonne Peters from Manitoba, and they both have very colorful careers and lots of accomplishments in the field of advocacy. So we hope you join us next time. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio, Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21. Triple Vision 2-1.